We are in Genesis chapter 33. By the way, if you're joining us for the first time in this season, maybe you've just picked up at Genesis 31 or 32, what's really cool is you can go back because some of you have plenty of time to do it and catch up. Listening to all the teachings through Genesis, they're available to you. I know about chapter six forward is on, is on YouTube, so you can watch those. Everything prior to that is, is audio, but I think you're up to it. So if you'd like to catch up with us and you haven't been here so far, we're in the book of Genesis. Now we're gonna pick up in chapter 33. We're gonna do two chapters tonight, 33 and 34. On the surface, these two chapters could not be more different. They're very unique in, in the stories that they tell and, and in what we learn from them. But before we get into that, as we walk into this, and God is gonna connect this, I believe, for us in a, in a profound way. But before we get into it, back it up, Jacob had just wrestled through the night with the visible God, who was, I believe, Jesus before Christ. In verse 30 of chapter 32, so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Peniel means face of God. And now verse 31, when the sun rose upon him, just as he crossed over Penuel. Penuel means facing God. So as the sun rose upon him, he was limping on his thigh. Fresh off the fight of his life, a weakened, limping Jacob now must face his brother Esau his brother who he had wronged by deceiving his father and, and taking the blessing which truly belonged to Jacob because he had the birthright, both by purchase and by prophecy. And yet he knew his brother felt wronged. He knew his, his brother, the last words he heard his brother spoke of him were threats of murder. And we know the Bible tells us, Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel, and isn't that true? Boy, when you offend someone, it is hard to regain trust. It is hard to repair and restore relationship, but it is absolutely vital. Understand that God keeps calling Jacob back home. Again, the last words that he heard coming out of the mouth of Esau were words of murder, I'm gonna kill my brother Jacob. And now he's coming back into the land, back where Esau lives. Why? Because God keeps calling him back there, keeps calling Jacob back home. Jesus does too. Note this, there's only one way to get back to God, and that's through reconciliation. Matthew chapter five, verse 23 says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. And what we have here in the story of Jacob is a beautiful divine continuity because before Jacob could complete the journey back to Bethel, back to the altar to which God called him, he first has to be reconciled with his brother. See how that flows? Reconciliation first, altar second. Why? Because John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Let me encourage you, one of the things that you can be doing in this season, you're stuck home, perhaps you're not able to go to work, 
quarantined, we're in our houses, pick up the phone and reconcile. Is there someone in your life who you are disconnected from because of conflict? Reconciliation is not only the way back to that relationship, but it is the way back to a relationship with God himself. Well, chapter 33 then, beginning in verse one, says, Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph came last. So these are by order of position and by order of preference. Jacob puts the maids out and the kids and then Leah and the kids, and then finally Rachel and Joseph, his favorites, they come along last. But he himself passed on ahead of them, and he bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. What is it with this family and weeping? This is an emotional group. But I love the scene here. And perhaps if you followed the story, you would think this is unexpected. Esau being a man of the field, being a hunter and being wronged, man, he's coming out to get Jacob. Certainly that's what Jacob thought. And yet what happens is he falls on his neck, he hugs him, they begin weeping together. Unguarded affection among brothers. I love seeing that. We don't have enough of that in this culture. Brothers who are showing love and affection, appropriate love and affection for each other because these two brothers are finally at peace. These are brothers reconciled. We're gonna see another tearful reconciliation between Jacob's sons when they end up coming before Joseph, but that's in Genesis 45. But John reminds us in 1 John 4, 21, this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If we were gonna call chapter 33 anything, I would give it the title, Peace by Reconciliation. Peace by Reconciliation, that's part one of our study tonight. As we go forward, verse five tells us he, that is Esau, lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, who are these with you? So he, Jacob, said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down and Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down and afterward Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down and he, that is Esau, said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? That is the droves of animals. Remember that, that Jacob had sent on ahead droves of, of gifts that he was sending for his brother and he sent servants to tell his brother, hey, these are for you. These are gifts from Jacob who's coming to see you. And so he says, what's this all about? And Jacob, verse eight continues, says, well, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Well, Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, because I have plenty. And then he urged him, and he took it. So Jacob urges Esau, and Esau finally relents, 
and receives the gift from Jacob. Peace by reconciliation. Man, five times in these few verses we see Hebrew variations on the word for favor. We see graciously in verse five and 11. We see favor in verse eight and nine. We see favorably in verse 10. And clearly God by his favor, by his grace has been working behind the scenes, softening the heart of Esau to bring him to this moment to prepare his heart. And on top of that, Jacob's gracious humility didn't hurt. Four times he refers to Esau as his Lord. He refers to himself as Esau's servant. It's a complete reversal of their birthright positions because by birthright, Jacob is Lord and Esau is servant. But Jacob is calling Esau Lord, calling himself servant. Keep that in mind. Listen to this. Esau's plenty and Jacob's plenty are plenty different. In fact, two different words are used, and this is significant in the story. Esau in verse nine says, I have plenty, and it's the Hebrew word rab. Rab, which means I have much. I have much. I'm blessed. I'm taken care of. I have much, he says. Jacob, down at the end of verse 11, says, I have plenty, but his word for plenty is different. He says, I have coal. Coal in the Hebrew, which means not I have much, but I have everything. Esau says, I have much. Jacob says, I have everything. And understand, he's not saying, I've got more than you've got. Nah, 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 nah. You know, he's not toying with them. He's not playing with them. He's imploring Esau to receive his gift. Why? Because Jacob says, I've got everything that is by birthright. I've got it all. I've got the birthright of our family. This, this is in my possession. Therefore, I have the right to give this to you. Well, how do we know that's what Jacob means? Because when Jacob says in verse 11, take my gift, that word gift is also unique in the Hebrew. It's not the typical word for gift. That word is the word matanot. That's the gift that you normally see in the Hebrew scriptures if someone's just giving a gift to another person. That's not the word he uses. He uses the word here, berkat, which comes from berakah, which comes from barak, which means blessing. This gift is the gift of my blessing. And the one who is able to give the blessing is the one who has the birthright. Jacob is saying to Esau here, in language Esau fully would have understand or understood, I've got everything. I, I have the blessing. I have the birthright. Please take this gift of blessing. It's my right to give it to you. I love the scene. To have everything, including birthright authority and his father's blessing, and on top of that, after all this time, Jacob has become a very humble man. Remember limping off of his wrestling match at Peniel. And now he comes forward and he wants to give this gift. By authority, by blessing, in humility, sounds like another firstborn I know. Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important 
than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says have this attitude. Why? Because the more you know the birthright of being born again, hey, if you're born again, you have a birthright. The more you know that and the more you understand the blessing of being a child of God, the less recognition you're gonna need from anyone. You have a birthright. You are born again. You have the blessing, children of God. And the more we understand the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, the more we're gonna know why we're still here. Have you asked that question? Why are we still here in 2020? Why are we here facing coronavirus? Why do we have to suffer through this? I've actually had that thought. I, I've thought of some previous generations who lived full lives, blessed lives, and, and went on ahead of us. I remember back when 9-11 hit, thinking at the time that my dear grandmother, who passed a couple of years before, never had to see that. And I think about those who never have to deal with the things that are happening right now, so strange, such a reversal of the way the world works all around us. And yet, and yet we're still here. What are we doing here? Maybe you're already stir crazy after a week in the house. What are we doing here? We are here first and foremost. Brothers and sisters, once you have accepted Jesus, once you've believed in Jesus, we are here for one reason, and that is to be ministers of reconciliation. We are here to be used of God to reconcile the world. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now, let me start in verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Hey, if you're listening to this tonight and you have not been reconciled to God, if you are not walking in a relationship with Jesus, I beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 21 says, God made him, that is God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God has done everything, pop, everything you can't do. Oh, person who's sitting out there saying, man, I'm just, I'll never be good enough. No, you won't. But Jesus is. And so he became sin. He took on your sin so that you, so that I could be reconciled to God. 
And once reconciled, this is our ministry. And so as the word goes out in this season through, through calls and through emails, social media, as the word that is not imprisoned goes forward, tell people, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That is our message. Not is there enough toilet paper, but be reconciled to God. Not, hey, have you checked the shelves at the local grocery store? Can I pick some things up? No, be reconciled to God. Not, hey, have you heard the latest on coronavirus? Be reconciled to God. That is our message. That's our ministry. That's our calling in Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. Verse 12, continuing on. Verse 12 tells us that Esau then said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. He offers Jacob basically a personal escort. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant and I will proceed at my leisure, coming to the place or at the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Well, Esau said, well, please, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Jacob politely refuses. Even Esau's offer, either for uh, an escort or to leave some of his men with him, he says, no, no, no worries. You, you go on. Jacob's gonna have to move at a slower pace. Now, some read this, and they presume that Jacob never intended to follow his brother back to Seir, that he was just trying to get him to move on. It's like reconciled and now I'm done with this relationship. And, and honestly, we can't know that unless you can get inside Jacob's head, which I know we're trying to do from time to time, but it's hard to tell what's he doing here. He has every right to say, I've got to move more slowly for my flocks and my herds and for my children. And so he says, no, Esau, you go on. It is unclear, however, whether Jacob ever came to Mount Seir, whether he ever visited Esau. And in fact, as far as the Bible is concerned, the only time that we're gonna see Jacob and Esau together again is at their father Isaac's burial over in chapter 35. Beyond that, we don't know what happened in the brother's relationship. We are left with this picture, peace by reconciliation. The brother's have come together and are reconciled. Verse 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. Sukkot, as you come down at, through the mountains of Jordan, about midway, again, I mentioned last week, bef between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, the Jordan River runs all the way down. And prior to coming to the Jordan River, as you're coming through those mountains, you come to Sukkot. Sukkot, in the Jordan Valley, but still on the east side of the river. So Jacob stopping at Sukkot has not yet come back into the land. Sukkot, it means booth or canopy, it's named that way because Jacob built booths for his livestock, uh, lean-tos, if you will, canopies that would stand over them, uh, barns that he would build around there for his livestock all to rest in the evenings, Sukkot. 
Bible students you know. Sukkot is one of the seven major feasts of Israel. Sukkot. It's talked about in Leviticus chapter 23. Sukkot is actually one of the most significant feasts because out of the seven, there are three what are called pilgrimage feasts where every male Jew, 20 and up, had to make their way up to Jerusalem every year for one of these three feasts. They're all listed in Deuteronomy 16 as the pilgrimage feast. You must come up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover every spring. Oh, Passover, celebrating that deliverance from Egypt. And we've seen it translated, haven't we, into what we just shared, the Lord's Supper. But Passover was feast number one. Secondly, 50 days later, Shavuot. Shavuot, which was the time of the ingathering of the summer harvest. The Jews were supposed to come up to Jerusalem for Shavuot. And the third one is Sukkot. Sukkot in the fall. Sukkot is that celebration of of God's blessing and provision through the wilderness, still celebrated today in Israel. It's quite a festival. It's an eight-day camp out throughout the land. Even if someone just has a little porch off of their apartment, they'll build a a sukkah. They will build these these little lean-tos or canopies. They'll eat under the canopies. Families will gather there and have festival meals for the entire week. It's a wonderful time. Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot of the seven major feasts of Israel are the pilgrimage feasts. Why these three? I mean, why not Yom Kippur or or Feast of Unleavened Bread or or First Fruits or one of the others? Why these three? I believe it's because these three have the most beautifully prophetic implications. You see, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Acts chapter two, verse 41 tells us that at Shavuot, which we Christians call Pentecost, those who received his word were baptized and that day were added about 3,000 souls. These right now are those days, the days of the summer harvest, the days, if you will, of Shavuot, the celebration of the ingathering of the harvest of wheat. That's today. But you know what? Passover. Shavuot, Sukkot. Sukkot is coming. Sukkot is on the way. Sukkot is gonna be the, a literal, annual worship celebration for all the nations in the coming millennial kingdom. It's the one we look forward to, where the Bible tells us all the nations of the earth at that time will go up to Jerusalem in the kingdom to worship the Lord there for. Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Listen to this, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. says, it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, that's Jesus, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths, that is Sukkot. So Sukkot is this, this dwelling now of Jacob, but it's a reminder both now and then, listen, that this is a temporary dwelling. One of the things that is so hard in this season with coronavirus is everything's different. Oh, I don't mean your day-to-day. You wake up, you're in your home, you're in the same place, but, but the world has changed, and we don't like that. You know, the, the mockers who come with their mocking 
They say nothing has changed since the beginning of the world until now. Everything just continues as it always has. Well, it's not continuing as it always has. We don't even know if it ever will. We don't know what's gonna come of this, how this is gonna change the way we live in this world or even how much longer, honestly, we have on this planet, at least until Jesus comes to make things right. We don't like the change. Sukkot is a reminder that this is a temporary dwelling. In case anybody forgot, we are not permanent in, in these bodies on this earth. But Sukkot is not only a reminder of temporary dwellings, of tents and canopies, and of the children of Israel moving through the wilderness. It is a reminder that in these temporary dwellings, God will see us through. God will get us through the times, through the seasons, through the age. God is gonna bring us into the land of promise. But Jacob's not quite there yet. Read on, verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So now finally he's crossed over the Jordan River and come to Shechem. It says, when he came from Padan Aram and he camped before the city, verse 19, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Jacob finally comes across. He is finally what we might consider back home, or at least on his way. He's headed the right direction. He's back in the land, but he settles again. So note this, he came across, reconciled with his brother, and he settled in Sukkot. And then he crosses the Jordan and he settles in Shechem, which is a, a town, a city, if you will, in the shadow of the mountains Ebal and Gerizim. It's Ramallah today in Israel. He buys land. That land that he buys is where his sons eventually are gonna be buried. Joshua 24 mentions that. He digs a well there at Shechem. In fact, that well exists today. That well existed in the time of Jesus walking the earth. It's the same well that we see in John chapter four. It's called the well of Sychar, where Jesus met the Samaritan woman. So he buys land in Shechem. He digs a well in Shechem, and he builds an altar there, we see in verse 20, that he names El Elohe Israel. El Elohe Yisrael, very interesting name for this altar because literally translated, it means God, the gods of Israel. El is God singular. Elohe is God in the plural form, but it's not Elohim, which is three or more, and it's the word often used for God. It's Elohe, meaning God's plural. So God, the gods of Israel. God of the gods of Israel, is, is Jacob sliding back into polytheism? Does he build this altar for his God among all the gods of, of Israel, like he has multiple gods? I doubt it. Actually, what I think is going on is more likely an all-encompassing statement to the pagan world around him, that God is all of the gods of Israel, that God is the gods of Israel, that there is only one. It may also be a hint as to his triunity, 
but that of all the gods, there is one, and he is the God of Israel. By the way, this is the first time that Jacob uses his new name, God, the gods of Israel, at his altar here at Shechem. El Elohe Yisrael. In fact, it also can translate this way. God of the gods of the struggler with God. God above the gods of the struggler with God. Or God, the only God of the struggler with God. And I point that out because something's happening here. Something's taking place here at the end of chapter 33. Something's going on with Jacob. I wonder if he's still wrestling. Oh, the wrestling match is over. He was blessed. He's limping, but with that limp, Jacob seems to be moving more slowly these days. And I wonder if he's not still struggling with God, at least internally. Why? Because he hasn't gone back to Bethel. He's taken his sweet time. He's loitering. He's dilly-dallying. He's dawdling, as my dad used to say. He's moving at a snail's pace. And curiously, of the well that Jacob dug there at Shechem, Jesus said in John 4, 13, everyone drinks of the water of this well will thirst again. Jacob is still thirsty. Jacob is not satiated. Jacob is still wrestling in his slow moving. Everyone, Jesus says, who drinks of this water will thirst again. We could apply that to the whole world. You can drink of the world. You can try to find satiation and satisfaction in the world, but you're just gonna get thirsty again. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The well at Shechem is not gonna satisfy Jacob. But hey, he, he built an altar, right? I mean, that's, that's a good thing. Built an altar at Shechem. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel told King Saul, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Or you can build an altar wherever you want. You can sacrifice to God. You can offer up worship. But listen, worship without obedience the songs, the prayers, even the sacrifices, they're empty. It truly means nothing. And, and I say this to myself, when, how often have I, have I come to worship and my mind has been somewhere else or perhaps my obedience through the week has not been to the Lord. Oh, I'm singing the songs of praise and it's starting to you know, generate in me a little excitement, but am I obedient? Worship with obedience, that's worship in spirit and in truth. That's worship in, in all honesty. So Jacob builds an altar, but he's not being fully obedient. In fact, Jacob is moving in slow motion. I'm calling this teaching faith in slow motion because Jacob has faith. He is heading back into the land, but he's moving so slowly. He settles for a while at Sukkot. Even builds a house. God never told him to build a house. And then from there, he travels literally 20 to 30 miles, big, long distance, and settles in Shechem. Digs a well, buys land. God never told him to buy land or build a house. Jacob is supposed to be a sojourner. 
not a slow-moving settler. And by the way, from where he settles at Shechem, Bethel, the house of God, is only 20 to 30 miles south. And yet, look at the pace. Chapters 33 and 34 together span an estimated 10 to 12 years. How long does it take to go from Peniel, the face of God, to Bethel, the house of God? Certainly not a decade. Faith in slow motion. I'll give you another two-word phrase for faith in slow motion. Partial obedience. Faith in slow motion is partial obedience. My dad would say to me, son, go out and mow the lawn. I could take an hour and a half just getting the mower out of the garage. I could take half a day to get one chore done. So many of us remember days like that when we were kids, and Jesus has a parable that goes along with it. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. He answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. So the man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe in him. Listen, all due respect, but Jesus paints a picture, gives a reality there that just as Jacob's faith was slow moving, so Israel's faith has been slow moving for 2,000 years. You say you believe all you want, but to obey is better than sacrifice. And Jacob is dawdling. He's not fulfilling. He's partially obeying, heading, yes, in the direction, but moving so slowly. I don't know, maybe he's just tired of wrestling. You know? We think, I've had enough sanctification for one year. I've had enough of all the things, all the mental challenges and the spiritual battles involved with following Jesus. I'm just gonna take a little time off from church. I don't need it right now. My friends, that just invites trouble. Slow-mo faith, partial obedience, it opens the door wide to more problems than you can imagine. It's interesting that in chapter 33, verse 18, that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Literally, Jacob came in shalom. He came in peace to the city of Shechem He would not leave it that way. We come now to chapter 34 and watch this distinction. In fact, the two chapters seemingly completely different. Chapter 33 is peace by reconciliation, but chapter 34 is gonna be crisis and retribution. Crisis and retribution. Watch the story unfold. Chapter 34, verse one. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, 
whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Dinah is the only named daughter of Jacob, although he had a number of them. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, but he had 33 children. So 21 daughters, and Dinah's the only one named. Why? This story right here. Verse two tells us when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor and said, get me this young girl for a wife. It's PG-13, so parents cover your children's ears. This is a rough story from the very beginning. He takes her by force, it says in verse two, and yes, that's exactly what you think it means. If translated, the word would be humiliated. Literally, this this Shechem, this Canaanite, raped Dinah. But but you might say, yeah, but it, it says that he loved the girl, verse three, and spoke tenderly to her. The construction and the usage of the word love there, along with the speaking tenderly, it speaks more of lust. It speaks of attraction and infatuation and flirting. In fact, Verse three literally begins where it says he was deeply attracted to Dinah. I'm not sure what your translation says, but the literal translation was his soul was deeply attracted. His soul man, the natural man, the thinking man. There is nothing spiritual about this love. And as you'll see later, Dinah is now still at his house. He takes her to himself and she is literally stuck at the home of this man named Shechem there in the city of Shechem. And this whole thing is completely backwards. He sleeps with her sexually and then he flirts with her. He takes her as his own for himself to fulfill his own pleasure and then, and then he woos her. It's completely out of order. I mean, what kind of sick backward society puts sex before the relationship? Think about that. What are we accustomed to? So accustomed to in American culture with movies and shows and the rest that exhibit someone going on a first date and sleeping with someone. It's supposed to be friendship, relationship, marriage, and then consummation. But we've got it completely backwards. By the way, in chapter 34, it's so bad that God isn't named a single time. He is not mentioned. He is not addressed. He's completely absent from this chapter. Compared to every other chapter in Jacob's life where he is mentioned multiple times, this is a glaring omission. You might also note there that it begins in verse one that Dinah went out to visit the daughters of the land. What's she doing? She went out to to see the daughters of the land. Maybe this is curiosity of the carnal Canaanite community around her, but she goes out to them. What is going on? Dinah, what are you doing? Well, first of all, note, Dinah is probably 14 to 16 years old. So at this point, she's thinking with the mind of a teenager. She's curious. She wonders what's life like outside of the household, of of the tents of Jacob. And so she wanders off going out to see how other girls her age 
are dealing with life. Man, parents, would you please be aware of your daughters wandering through Canaanite villages on their iPhones? Going out to see what the other girls are doing, what the other boys are doing, what's going on outside of the church community? I'm not saying you lock them up. Although Mark Twain had a great piece of advice for uh, parents in parenting their children. He said, you know, when kids are first born, you wanna put them in a big cardboard box, plenty of room with air holes in it. When they turn 13, plug up the air holes. See, that was his idea of what you do with this. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't suggest that. No, what's going on, though, is that Dinah has gone out. Dinah is unprotected. She's unguarded. She's uncovered. Fathers, mothers, are your daughters protected? Are they guarded? And when I say protected, I do not mean it the way our culture does. I mean spiritually, emotionally. Are you in tune with your kids as they wander? Do you know where they really are going? Who's got eyes on Dinah here? And what's she going out to see? What does the world have to offer outside of the house of God? Wait a minute. They're not out the house of God yet, are they? They're at Shechem. We're in a place of partial obedience and trouble is coming. Verse five, now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. I don't know about you dads, but I would go ballistic, and yet Jacob holds his tongue. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard and the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to be done. And suddenly in this ugly godless chapter, we see a morality lesson. It's history, it truly happened. But Moses, in writing down this story among these stories in Genesis, refers to it as, quote, a disgraceful thing in Israel that ought not to be done. Interesting, at this point, Israel's a man and his family, but already Moses is, is alluding to the fact that this is not the kind of thing that is okay to be done in Israel among the people of Israel, this is not godly behavior. And Moses is using it in this story to teach that very lesson. It's something that ought not to be done. Dinah went outside of Israel, and this is the result. Now, hear me on this. I'm not blaming Dinah for this rape situation, but when we get out from under the covering of God, from under the covering of our Father, the threat to our faith is real. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Dinah as a daughter of Israel. The story going to the children of Israel and you and me as children of God, be obedient children. Don't wander out from under the Father's covering. Be holy because God is holy. Well, as I said, Jacob did nothing about this. Maybe he's tired of wrestling. 
Maybe he's just decided it's best to let it go. Just ignore it. Let's not make a big deal out of it. No big thing. And too many Christians, too many churches are right there with cultural carnality. Ah, it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's in every show on Netflix. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I know it's probably not the best idea, but what does it really hurt to watch? What does it really matter if my friends are involved in this behavior or that? It's not that big a deal. You know what it is? It's a church in partial obedience. It's faith in slow motion. And Hamor and Shechem, these are men of the culture. They come along and they try to justify it. Verse eight, but Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. And thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, that is to Israel and the, and the boys. He also said, if I find favor in your sight, I will give whatever you say to me. Ask ever so much bridal payment and gift and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Oh, the girl you already violated? The girl you raped, the sister that you took into your own tent, and by the way, she's still there? Come on, they say. Let's make a deal, they say. Live and let live, coexist, come along with us, and we'll all benefit for it. Just you lighten up your moral stuff, your values, your ethics, just, let, just simmer them down a bit, and let's all be together. And I remind you what Jesus said in John 10, 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He will say, let's make a deal. He'll say, oh, come on, let's just have a little of you and a little of us. We'll all live happily together. No, steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And life in Christ Jesus does not look like life in the world and the life that the world wants you to share. Verse 13. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father with deceit, that is, with fraud, treacherously. They've hatched a scheme between them because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to him, verse 14, we cannot do this thing. To give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will be like us, in that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people but if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Well, their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, who is Hamor's son. Verse 19, the young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected or honored, I guess, than all the household of his father. Well, great guy. This is the most honorable guy. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and they spoke to the men of their city, listen to this, saying, 
These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. And let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this will the men consent to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. I can see some eyes popping open at this meeting. Wait, what, what, excuse me? And then he says, but but will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. That wasn't the deal. That wasn't the guarantee. It was daughters for your daughters, but there was no offer to Hamor and Shechem that they could take over all of Israel's stuff, his livestock, his cattle, his sheep. See, that's how it works. The devil says, hey, let's just share. You give to us, we'll give to you. We'll all be one big happy family, but behind the scenes, steal, kill, destroy. He will take everything that is yours. Well, all who went out of the gate of this city, verse 24, listen to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And here's the treachery. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain, verse 25, that two of Jacob's sons, Shimon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, both sons of Leah, Dinah's mother, so direct sons, brothers, they each took his sword and came upon every uh, on the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword. They took Dinah from Shechem's house where she had been all along and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and they looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, they took their herds, they took their donkeys and that which was in the city, and that which was in the field, and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. They just took it all. Jacob said to Shimon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land. I call this the stench in Shechem. You have made me stink before all the inhabitants, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And on top of that, Jacob says, my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed, I and all my household. And Shimon and Levi said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? You're not gonna do anything, dad? So they argue back and forth in this horrible, treacherous moment. Crisis and retribution. Remember the last chapter? Peace and reconciliation. Crisis and retribution. Where God is present, peace and reconciliation. Where God is absent, crisis and retribution. Romans 12, 9, the Apostle Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 35. He says, never take your own revenge Beloved, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now don't take that wrong. Some people hear that and say, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. So he's a God of vengeance? No, he's a God of perfect righteousness. 
He tells you, he tells me, don't take vengeance. Don't pay retribution. Don't go after people. I'm the only one who can do it perfectly. God is the only one who is so righteous that when he judges, it's absolutely fair. It's absolutely true. It's good. Man, when I get into the retribution business, I go way overboard. Look at what Joseph's sons did. I mean, it wasn't just an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, a woman for a woman. They wiped out the entire town of Shechem. They took the place down. They looted it completely. And that's often what the retribution of humanity does. We go way overboard. God alone knows the human heart. God alone knows how to pay righteously. What a story. Well, I'll tell you what, after this story, later on, Jacob is gonna lower what we might call the prophetic boom on his sons as he Later down in chapter 49, he's blessing his sons and he begins to prophesy. Listen to what he says about Shimon and Levi, the two murderous sons who carried out this vile deed. He says in Genesis 49, verse five, Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger, they slew men. And in their self-will, they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So it would be for Shimon and for Levi. Interesting, the tribe of Levi's redeeming grace will be that they take up the sword of the Lord. That'll happen over in Exodus chapter 32. They will become the priestly tribe because in a moment of dire decision, they will stand with the Lord. But they're gonna do it bearing the sword and they will take out 3,000 men in one day. Now we'll talk about that when we get to Exodus, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise. But I wanna end with a question here. I want you to think this through with me. These two seemingly disparate chapters, completely different Peace through reconciliation, crisis and retribution. What's going on here? Why are these paired? Listen, what would have happened in chapter 34 if rather than going Sukkot to Shechem and stopping, what if rather than partial obedience, Jacob had just gone all the way to Bethel as God had called him? What if he had just obeyed? See, partial obedience opens the door to tragedy. Partial obedience opens the door for things to happen that that wouldn't have happened if we had just listened to God and gone all the way, not a quarter of the way, not halfway, not three-fourths of the way, but the entire way, the distance that God has called us to. And what's interesting to me is chapter 35 begins, verse one, just verse one, then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. It is time for Jacob to go up to Bethel. Time for Israel to go up to the house of God. Now the political implications of that statement are huge. 
Time for Israel of the slow-moving faith to finally come back to the house of God, to finally go up to Bethel. Time right now for that to happen. I am longing for that to happen. Paul says in Romans 11, the deliverer will come from Zion. There will be a great deliverance for Israel, a promised deliverance, a time for them to go up to the house of the Lord. Isn't it interesting right now that Jews are suddenly being blamed for coronavirus? Have you heard that one? That's another thing to add into the anti-Semitism of the age that the Jewish people are being blamed for this. And meanwhile, among all people, things are just getting increasingly uncomfortable for everyone in this world. I was thinking about before this hit, how settled we all were, how comfortable we all were. But there is a better house to which God is calling us. Jesus said in John 14, verse two, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let me ask you tonight, is your faith in slow motion? Are you living a life of partial obedience? Maybe you're building in Sukkot, settling in Shechem. Once reconciled to God, we are called to head to the house of God, to stay under the covering of God, to move in the direction of the Father, to go to the house of God without delay. Reconciliation and then get to Bethel. Reconciliation with the Lord, with brothers and sisters, and then go to the house of God. How do you do that exactly? I'm gonna get specific on that in our next live stream which will be Sunday, Genesis 35. We will talk about how do you get to Bethel. But note this, whereas chapter 34 is completely devoid of any mention of God, in chapter 35, God is named 10 times. He will refer to himself in the next chapter as El Shaddai, God Almighty. He will once again visibly appear to Jacob. He will appear in person at Bethel, when Jacob finally gets back. God is gonna take the horrible violation of Dinah, the horrific violence of Shimon and Levi, which upsets everything. I mean, it's kind of like coronavirus. I, I can make the comparison. This is horrible. This virus is a pestilence. It is killing people. It is making people sick. It is taking apart the world structure. It's really the oddest thing any of us have seen in this lifetime. And like what happened in chapter 34, everything seemed fine, moving along at a snail's pace, going slow, taking it easy, don't push too hard, partial obedience, and all of a sudden, all this just explodes. This horrible, evil, wicked stuff happens. But you know what? God causes good. The Lord brings good to all those who are called according to his purpose. And even out of the mess of chapter 34, the Lord is gonna turn it around. He is now gonna move Jacob back down to Bethel. Jacob can't stay in Shechem after this. He's gotta move. Reminds me of the church in Jerusalem of the first century where they were just hanging out, 
faith in slow-mo, staying in Jerusalem until a great persecution broke out. And then they had to send, send out finally to Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth, which is what they were supposed to do in the first place. Jacob now is heading down or up to literally Bethel, where God will again reconcile Jacob to himself. Oh, God is so patient. Reconciliation. And then through these hard seasons, we come out of our slow motion and up to the house of God. And that's the picture before us tonight. I hope you're doing okay in your homes. Hope it's not too nutty. I hope you're not too stir crazy. I hope that you're healthy. Hope that you have plenty of supplies and toilet paper. (laughs) But more than that, I hope you have peace. I really do. I'm praying for that for our fellowship friends and family, that that peace will be over our homes. And by the way, if you have any problems, if you don't have peace, if you're running low on groceries, if you're struggling, if there's anything that we can do for you, call the church office number. We have it attached to Eva's home phone, so it's just going to ring 24-7. Give her a call. Call us up. The word will get out, and we will respond to any need, whether it's just to, to talk to one of our pastors or one of our ministry staff, if it's to pray with someone, if you have some need of, like I said, groceries or, or supplies you're running low and you need help getting something, please call. We will not forget about you, but I wanna leave you with this tonight. That in spite of the fact that we're all at the stay-at-home quarantine, Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says the following. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. You could translate that, no partial obedience, no slow-mo faith. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Again, that's Romans 12, 10 through 13. It's quite a list. You know what? Every single thing on this list we can do from home. Everything on this list we can do for each other. Everything on this list we can do in the name of the Lord. But we have a choice right now. In this season of having to be stuck in our homes, we can either slow it down partial obedience or we can stand with the Lord. We can trust in the Lord and we can seek him at Bethel, the house of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word to us tonight. Lord, reading chapter 33 and the peace of reconciliation, Lord, that's beautiful It's wonderful to see the brothers reunited, to see peace finally come. And yet, Lord, as we see Jacob slowly moving, partially obeying, boy, that is such a referendum on so many of our lives. And so I say, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. I pray that, wow, what we saw in chapter 34 won't be the extent, won't be the brutality and the the type of bloodshed. Lord, the type of pain And yet in this season of the virus, there's a lot of pain and worry and fear. Father, I pray, would you bring us 
out of this season. In fact, use this season, Lord, to motivate your people to head up to the house of God, to trust in you, to not lag behind, to not be a people of a slow-moving faith, but trusting you with all that we are and all that we have. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I wanna give you, I, I know I said one final thought, but this is a Wednesday night. And Wednesday night allows me to go as long as I want. No, I just have one final thought, and I just wanna share this with you because I think it's pertinent. We are not people called to a slow-mo faith, as I said. Slow-moving, lagging behind, partial obedience. Someone might ask this question, because I've talked about this a lot. They might say, but Pastor Rick, I thought we were supposed to wait on the Lord. You're telling us not to move slowly. I thought we were to wait on the Lord. Well, let's listen to the verse. Isaiah 40, verse 31. He gives strength to the weary, praise God. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. That's verse 29. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, listen, yet those who wait for the Lord will do what? They will gain new strength. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I skipped a section. They will mount up with wings like eagles. That's what waiting on the Lord does. Waiting on the Lord is not slow-mo faith. Waiting on the Lord is trusting him, it's being prayerful, it's listening to him. And as we do that, we mount up with wings like eagles. We run and do not grow weary. We walk and we do not faint. But we don't move in slow motion. We do not lag behind. And I pray for you, brothers and sisters, that you will not lag behind in your faith in this season, but that we would truly explode through the airwaves, through phone calls, through every medium at hand, that we will get the word out and people will know the love of a God who wants to reconcile the world to himself through Christ Jesus. God bless you all. Thank you for tuning in, I guess we could say, tonight and listening and worshiping with us, being in the word together and communing. 